Thank you, Jessica. Knowing you. Well, pray that God's spirit will rain down upon us like the weather has been raining down upon us for the last, what, year almost? It's craziness. Well, it's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning, availing ourselves to God's inspired, precious word that changes our hearts and renews our mind. We're going to look at Psalm 52 this morning. Psalm 52. Out of 150 psalms, there are very few that actually give a historical background or a historical reason or setting for why these words were penned. Psalm 52 is one of those rare psalms that actually is based on a real life experience. It wasn't just a general feeling or a general thought, but the words that David penned are very specific and apply to a very bitter time in the history of Israel. And because of the historical setting, we need to understand the historical setting or the history behind these words in order to really understand the psalm. And so we got to go back to the Old Testament. We got to go back to First Samuel. And I'm actually going to spend at least half the sermon setting up that historical um, happening so that we understand the words more richly, more deeply as David speaks them. So you can turn to first Samuel. I'm going to just really give a summary. I'm, I'm going to um, towards the end, I'll actually read some of the passage in 22 chapter 22, but I'm just going to bring you up to speed historically. I'm going to trust that you have a little bit. Hopefully you have a little bit of a background of the history of Israel and as David rose into his kingship, but that's where I'm going to start. But in First Samuel chapter 20, it talks about um, David and Jonathan's very special bond. Now, David is that young shepherd boy who has been anointed king. He was anointed king while Israel had an anointed king, and that would be King Saul. But King Saul wasn't doing such a wonderful job. King Saul had some demons, we might say. He was he became more and more tormented on the inside. He made unwise choices. Uh, in, in essence, he couldn't handle the position that was given to him. He was too insecure. In the meantime, David's anointing just began to, to raise him to the top. And it was very evident that David was finding success in everything he did. And and um, he would fight enemies and find great success. And so he was becoming a very popular figure, which was great for him, but not good for Saul. And rather than uh, seeing David as a gift from God, he saw David as competition to the throne and his hatred began to grow towards David. And so there was tension in this context that was building within the kingdom. In the midst of this, you have Jonathan, who is King Saul's son. Jonathan is one of those good guys. Um, he had a lot in common with David. David and Jonathan made a covenant of friendship together. They shared passions. They loved God. They loved Israel. They loved fighting for God. And they they. Love, truth and honesty and integrity and the, the whole package of the Old Testament and what God had brought to this kingdom. 
And so they, with similar passions, they just bound together and they had similar values too. And so they, they made, it made for a great friendship. Jonathan was put in a terrible position because he's a righteous guy. He's an honest guy. And yet his father's the king and he realizes his father's not so stable. So he, he was one of those rare individuals that actually could walk the, the narrow road of bringing honor to his father without forsaking righteousness. He would he would honor his father as long as it was as long as his father didn't ask him to to break God's law. He was there. He was very loyal to it. David begins to describe to Jonathan that I don't think your dad's not right. Your dad is like really mad at me. He wants to take my life. Jonathan isn't convinced about this. So in chapter 20, he says, well, let's do a test. I'll do a do a test. In the meantime, you better stay away just in case what you say is true. Of course, I'm just summarizing all of this. And um, what I'll do is do this test. And after a few days, you get behind this rock that we both know of. And I'm going to take my servant boy out here, my shield bearer, and I'm going to shoot some arrows. And if my arrows go beyond the rock, that means you need to go that direction. You need to get out of here. What you said is true. But if they fall short of the rock, that means it's safe to come back. And so Jonathan runs these, a series of tests to see if um, Saul really is after David and angry enough to take David's life. And sure enough, not only is he angry enough to take David's life, but he throws a spear at his own son in a fit of anger. So Jonathan shoots the arrows and and that's the sign for David, you got to go. It's not safe around here. My dad really is out for your throat. And so they have a tearful say their, their goodbyes and David goes off. And then in chapter 21, David travels. He's by himself. He's literally on the run for his life. And he goes to a town of Nob, interesting place in Israel. And it's a town that has a very high population of priests, but not just any priests, uh, Aaronic priests from the Aaronic priesthood. So there's Levites from the tribe of Levi, but then then the highest of the highest are the Aaronic priesthood. And they had very uh, distinct temple um, responsibilities and ministry responsibilities that only Aaron's sons could perform. So I guess if you wanted to say it like this, is kind of the best of the best in the priesthood. And Nob had a high population of priests and they had set up a, a place of worship. It wasn't the tabernacle, but it was a legitimate place of worship. They offered sacrifices. They ministered to the people and any of the locals that cared to come there and worship God and make confession. So they were used by God in that area. And David comes to Nob, to the priest Ahimelech, and he's explaining his situation. Look, I'm, I'm on an important mission from the king, and uh, I, I have to make haste. I don't even have any food with me, nor do I have any weapons with me because I had to leave so suddenly. And Ahimelech is in conversation with him. Now, you know by now that in the Middle East, hospitality is very, very important. You just don't turn people away. Uh, they, they prided themselves. It was a great deal of honor and pride involved in that. But Ahimelech didn't have his lunchbox with him. He didn't have anything to share. Nothing was ready. In that day and age, you didn't just pop things in the microwave. You didn't have refrigerators or fast food. So with that said, he says, I don't have anything to offer you. Nothing's cooked. And of course, it's nothing's quick. 
got to grind the flour and then you got to knead it and then you got to stoke the fire up and bake it. David's in a hurry. So he says, all I have to eat is these loaves of bread for the showbread of um, used for worship. And so he gives David some bread to eat and some to take on his journey. And you weren't supposed to do that because that was only for temple worship ceremonial purposes. However, there were uh, exceptions within the ceremonial laws and and the um, uh, the worship laws of Israel that if somebody's life was in danger, then you, of course, you could feed them to keep them alive. And so it wasn't so holy that it couldn't be used. Um, you might say the spirit of the law. And so the priest wasn't doing anything wrong. He gave David some bread to eat. David said, I don't have any weapons either. Well, that was the place where the sword of Goliath had been uh, housed or stored. Very likely David, after he defeated Goliath, donated it or whatever for inspiration to people. And it was there. And Ahimelech said, the only weapon I have around is none other than the sword of Goliath, which David pretty much earned anyway. So he gives him that sword. So um, <clears throat> that is where David goes. That's the that's the the uh, historical circumstance. And here's where it begins to relate to our psalm, which I actually won't read till about halfway into the service because this builds up to the words. In that town of Nob, there happened to be an Edomite and his name was Doeg. Doeg was employed by King Saul. He was his head shepherd. So he looked after the uh, King Saul's lambs or goats, whatever he had. He was there and he heard this whole conversation. He saw all of this. And it was very unusual for this to take place because there were exceptions in the law, but it was unusual for them to be applied. And it was unusual for David to be alone because David was employed by Saul to be kind of his right man, hand man, a bodyguard, because he was so successful in his warrior exploits. So Doag takes note of all this. Now, in order to understand Doag and David in the psalm is talking about a wicked man. And that man is the person that we are learning about right now. He's what we might call an opportunist. He's of the character. He's the kind of person that's constantly look, listening and, and, and watching and observing things. Eavesdropping on people's conversation, if that's what it takes. You know, looking over people's shoulder, if that's what it means. Because he's always looking for a way to get a leg up. An, an opportunist. Um, he wants to prosper himself. And... An opportunist is a person that will exploit circumstances uh, in place of any principles or morals or values, exploit circumstances to give themselves an, an advantage. But he takes in, he absorbs what just happened, this dialogue, and he takes it in. So he's, he has it now. And he wants to use it as an opportunity to propel himself up. He's not, he's not satisfied. He's never satisfied where he is in his place of importance. And that's what an opportunist does. Of course, we see ample examples of opportunists in our culture. 
people that will exploit circumstances, exploit things that they've heard, things that maybe they weren't even supposed to see. And rather than just let well enough be alone, they use it. We see this all the time um, in our culture. We see this today, uh, even recently, when we watch journalists, a big thing that it makes the headlines, journalists write reports and make the headlines on uh, events that they hadn't even taken the time to substantiate. We see this all the time now, but they get their their moment in the spotlight and they get their moment of fame. They they wanted to uh, be more important. And so they write this song and they compromise. I mean, this story and they compromise their integrity and the integrity that takes to be a good journalist. So that's somebody that is an opportunist. Or we see uh, pictures, you know, with the with the World Wide Web, the Internet that we have now. People find pictures that maybe they're not supposed to find or not supposed to know about, and they use them to exploit others to raise their position. We see it with the paparazzi as well. Uh, we see it in politics all the time. Have you ever noticed? Uh, surely you've noticed. Uh, we had it with, with Kavanaugh. We even had it with our own governor. That there, there's information of things in the past that happened that are really of no significance when they happen. But now in our day and culture and in our time, you bring something that happened 20 years ago, 10 years ago, whatever, to the spotlight. And it makes that person look terrible. And so information, things that are heard and witnessed are often used to exploit. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about this guy, uh, Doeg. At other people's expense. So David leaves the priest. He travels to a few different uh, different towns. And remember, his life is in danger. Uh, King Saul is pursuing him heavily. He wants to know where he is so he can snuff out the competition. So it's in 1 Samuel 22 that the story of Psalms, what David says in Psalms and what actually happens in Samuel really begin to merge. As a matter of fact, this bitter time in Israel's history that we're about to read about is only mentioned in two places in Scripture. One of them is Psalms that were, I mean, um, Samuel that we're going to read and then the psalm. So <clears throat> um, King Saul is paranoid. And he begins to even sense that his own camp, his own soldiers aren't really being honest with him because David has grown so popular. And favorable in the eyes of the people. That not everybody is feeding King Saul the information he needs in order to capture David. So he's beginning to doubt even the loyalty of his own troops. He's really driving himself mad with his paranoia and his jealousy in chapter 2. And so he gathers his troops together. And he gives them a little speech. And he basically challenges them. Is there anybody out there? That is with me. Is there anybody out there that I can really trust? Because David's still on the run. And he is a threat to my throne. We read this in chapter 22, 7 through 19. Saul said to his servants who stood about him. Here now, people of Benjamin. Keep in mind, Saul was a Benjamite. 
Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. So he puts out this challenge. You know, who's for me? Who's against me? What's all this stuff happening under my nose here? Nobody's telling me about it. There's no informants here. Then comes on the scene. The person in the song. Verse nine, then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servant of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistines. Now, notice before I go any farther. The whole transaction that took place with Ahimelech, there was, he did nothing wrong. Matter of fact, he was even surprised to find David without Saul because David was Saul's bodyguard. He questioned him. He thought he was on a mission for the king. He was a loyal servant of the king, ministered to the king. But the way that Doeg formed these words, it really made it sound like Ahimelech was in cahoots. It's a conspiracy with the priest and David against King Saul. And he had been holding on to this information to be able to display it, make it public just at the right time. So he tells the truth. What he said was true. But the light that it shed or the way that it's offered is very deceptive. And it also makes, of course, Doeg look like, hey, I'm the one you're looking for. I'm your trusted servant. Verse 11. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest the son of Ahitab and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob and all of them came to the king. Saul said, here now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, here I am, my Lord. Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king, and whom among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to a servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. So that seems to answer that. There was no conspiracy. David has come to me many times. You've come to me many times. There's nothing unusual here. I'm innocent. Don't try to make something where there is nothing. And you think, well, that should do it. But that's not enough. That answer did not satisfy King Saul. He doesn't buy it. Verse 16, the king said, you shall surely die. Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it, disclose it to me. Now, you have to understand there is an incredible amount of tension 
in the air with just this scene right here. I want you to begin to think about what's really happening. What is what is King Saul really asking these soldiers to do? They are put in an incredibly awkward place. I mean, I, I would imagine you could hear a pin drop when Saul, rather than saying, okay, I get it now, I, I misjudged. He says, kill them all. These are the priests of God. These are men that have been specially anointed by God, the God of Israel. These are men that it, it would, would be very likely that some of these soldiers had been to Nob because it was close to Saul's camp. And these soldiers minister, I mean, these priests ministered to these soldiers. They, he ministered to David and to Saul, maybe even to their families. They had set up what you might say was, a, was the local church, local place of worship. So these were men of God. And in all Israel, you know that from from infancy, you are taught to respect and honor the anointed of God. And they are placed there to help you love God and to teach you about God and help relieve your burdens and 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 give you guidance and advice and counsel and help you with the sacrifices and guide you in all the things of life. In the ways that we fall short and the ways that we can get closer to God and, and learn to love God and take joy in God. These are the men literally placed by the God of heaven in their midst to serve this purpose. And so there's tremendous respect, tremendous honor for these men. They're the men of the cloth that we might say today. And they are being asked to take these men's lives. And I would imagine they would have rightly judged the situation, unlike Saul. Saul was so paranoid and angry and jealous that it it skewed his judgment, which it will do to us as well, by the way. If we let bitterness, unforgiveness, anger, jealousy, if we let it get deeper and deeper into our minds and our hearts, it seeps in and we can't see things like they really should, like they really are. And so Saul can't see the obvious, but I think these guys probably can. And they're thinking to themselves, my goodness, never have I been put in this kind of position. To be asked to slay the anointed of God on top of that, the order is given by also the king who has been anointed by God, the God of Israel. He's the king. He's the one, the first king they've ever had to deliver them from their enemies. It's, it's a God thing. He's at work. And so they're, they're taught to respect him and honor him and follow every order. And it's for the good of Israel and for the good of the people and for the good of God. And that's how we we worship God and we we go with the priests and we obey them. And then we go with our king. And so you have you have the priests of God and the army of God. And they're in conflict. So codes of conduct, just red flags and whistles are going off everywhere in this scene. There's such tension. I mean, I can feel it when I when I read this story. Imagine being asked to do this and you're a soldier. God worked through these both of these offices, both of these institutions for the good of the people in Israel. And then these two groups come at each other. 
it's 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 a nightmare of a situation that you don't ever want to find yourself in. And I was reading this and preparing this and and it reminded me this feeling of uneasiness in my gut and my spirit it reminded me of a movie I watched in the late 90s. Uh, I think it was called The Rock and it had Sean Connery in it. And he was a ex-con. I, I, I think it took place in Alcatraz and he was like the only one that had escaped. So they get him out of prison and they say, we need your information. We need to know how to get in here undetected because what had happened is Ed Harris was a very uh, successful military general, but he'd gone rogue and he'd set up camp and some of his soldiers were with him in this fort. And so military takes care of rogue military, military disciplines, military. And so the Good guys, military, now have to take out the bad guys, military. And the whole movie, it's it's like building up and you can sense that these these special forces, if you will, are getting closer and closer to each other to a to a showdown. And sure enough, the very thing you don't want to happen, you don't want to see your military heroes facing each other, especially the special forces. And here they are at the end of this movie. And I think. Lord, it was just a movie, but here they are in this movie and the good guys come in and they're at the lower level and then the bad guys and they have their guns and they're 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 scoped in. And these are warriors. These are trained men trained to take an order. And if that means to kill, to kill. And they're all facing each other. And I'm looking, I'm saying, no, this can't be. You guys took a oath to each other. No man left behind. You fight together. You're on the same team. And here they are at odds. And you know, just a blink of an eye and, and, and bullets are going to be flying. But you, you felt the tension of the honor and the code that these are two teams that should never, ever have to be against each other. They were trained in oneness to serve the same purpose. I remember just thinking, Ah, don't do this. This is that was a movie. This is real life stuff here. In Samuel. Codes of honor being pushed and twisted. So that's what King Saul's soldiers were facing. I mean, what do you do? Do you, do you disobey the royal king? Or do you disobey the royal priesthood? What? So what do they do with the tension as thick as peanut butter? The servants of the king. Would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Wow, what a relief. Yes, they can't do it. They decide in their hearts, I cannot obey this order and live with myself. I just can't do it. So I would rather disobey the order of the king than slay the people of God. The priests of God. The priests are saved. Thank goodness. At least for that brief moment anyway. And then our dirty dog, Doeg, man, comes back on the scene. This this is just a shepherd, chief shepherd of the flock. The soldiers won't do it. So then the king said to Doeg, verse 18, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day. Eighty five persons. 
who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. It was a complete massacre of innocent men, women and children. And and he didn't just kill the first one and then hesitate and ask himself, wait a minute, what am I doing here? It only built his momentum of bloodthirstiness. And he did not stop until there literally was not a, a living or breathing thing. In this little town of Nob that had a high population of Aaronic priests. It was one of the most Bitter experiences in the history of Israel. And it's only in two places. Samuel and in this psalm. Psalm 52. To the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. And now you know the historical setting of this psalm. It begins in the first four verses as we unpack it. A portrait of a very wicked man. Why do you boast, O evil? Boast of evil, O mighty man. The steadfast love of God endures all the day. NIV says, you who are a disgrace in the eyes of God. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right, Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. This is the doag that David knows. He labels his character basically with three descriptions. First, he's proud. He's he's not the kind of uh, proud that... um, Parades itself around, chest all puffed out. You know, look at me. I'm so wonderful. It wasn't that kind of arrogance. It was the smug arrogance. The smug kind of pride that that is content with just maybe a little smirk. Because in his mind, he thinks he's really something. He thinks he's really clever. That his plans always work out. There's, It's a smugness of self-sufficiency and superiority and being absorbed in his own abilities. He's intrigued with how clever he can use the material and circumstances to his advantage. He was cold and calculating. He was self-controlled with that information and he just held on to it until just at the right time. Just like like stock. You just watch the market and you watch the market and then when you see it rise... And then it's time to sell. And that's what he did with this information. He played his hand. Second, David calls him evil. He loves evil more than good. And so not only does he just serve as an informant to the king, which could be taken either way. But he is an evil person. And there's no doubt to how evil he is when he picks up the sword and he, without conscience, slays the anointed of God and doesn't stop there, but slays their family and even their children down to the animals. There's no stop to this. It's a killing spree. It's a massacre. And in his heart, he does this. He has no regard for righteousness, no regard 
for innocence. Innocence. He cuts them down. He alone, out of all those soldiers, did what nobody else would do. Because at least they had a portion of goodness and understanding and discernment and conscience. And then third is tongue is a great weapon. We know that words, the Bible tells us they can be used for good or they can be used for evil. They're not really neutral things. We're either building up or we're tearing down. We're using them for good or bad. And when you use them for bad, you have a guy like this, man. The information that he knows and the way that he can use these words can bring great destruction. And it's like the passage that James gives us, that teaching on the tongue of all the exploits of man and all the accomplishments of man, we cannot tame the tongue. And when the tongue gets out of line, it can cause terrible destruction that cannot be stopped like a forest fire. And that's how Doeg uses his. James says this should not be. My brothers and sisters in Christ, this isn't how we should be using our tongues or we should be using the information that we have. James Boyce uh, tells a little story about World War Two. And, you know, of course, it took place over there in Europe and the countries that were very close to one another. So they were often aware of what was going on because it wasn't across the pond, if you will. And in England, during this war, there was a poster that was designed against unwittingly disclosing very important uh, military information regarding the movement of the troops. And And this sign that was designed was displayed everywhere in Europe. And it said, loose talk costs Lives. Loose talk costs lives. In other words, if you see your troops clandestinely, clandestinely or whatever, steenly moving around in secret, don't tell everybody what's going on. There's a reason for secrets in the military. And your words could cost lives. Of course, this is also applied in a spiritual way. Doeg had no regard for truth. So that is the man of the psalm. This proud man, this evil man, this deceptive man. And David goes on to prophesy what will become of wicked people like this. Not just Doeg, but others that are characterized by this in verses 5 through 7. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living, Selah. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But what David is doing here is he, he's basically predicting the downfall of Doeg. And he predicts really the downfall of all those that would follow in his steps because he understands This very, very important principle. It's important for us to glean from this psalm. And that is that God is always at work. And the person that runs this universe is a moral person. And he is a good person. And he always is evaluating and he always judges 
the universe based on his standard of morality. So there's there's a universal principle that is always at work between good and between evil. And the sovereign God. In the end, which is the title of this sermon, in the end, nobody gets away with doing wrong. Because the person that runs it all and is in charge of it all keeps tabs and he knows. And he can't be fooled and he can't be tricked. And he absolutely cares about every choice, every thought, every act. And because the universe is running that way, David understands this principle. And he knows because God is true and his ways are true, Doag, sooner or later, he's gone. He's ruined. He's had it. Because there's a principle at work. And God does not just sweep these kind of things under the rug. I remember as a child uh, that this principle was very much uh, made known in media. You don't see it as much in our relativistic culture. It's kind of like anything goes. There's no right and wrong. You know, movies are all over the place these days. But when I was growing up, especially with the good old westerns, which I preferred... You know, you always had the good guys and the bad guys. Most of the time, the good guy wore white and the bad guy wore. See, you watched them, too. So you had a, and you just knew no matter how bad things went along the line. In the end, in the end, the good guy was going to win. It, it, he he might have been out in the desert with, with no water left in his canteen in the middle of the movie. Or he might have been in a, in a gunfight and he's out of bullets. Or he might even been shot. It, but whatever it was, whether it was uh, most of the time in westerns or even war movies, in the end, somehow, the good overcomes bad. And that was just so evident in, in when I was growing up in my culture in, in the media. Not so much anymore. But you knew. And I think it was evident because... We do society a disservice to not portray that message because it's real and it's true. In the end, evil doesn't pay. You're going to pay. We're going to pay God because he's good. It's not just like no God or a God that can't make up his mind. He's a righteous God. So in the end, and David is pulling on this. And, you know, we need to pull on this universal principle, this biblical truth, to help us in our day, to help us deal with things that we see, because there is a lot of unrighteousness. And this principle doesn't mean that the righteous won't suffer. Even in this story, you have the, the men of God, innocent priests ministering for him, serving the Lord, and they are slain. Their families as well, gone, cut off. It doesn't mean that the innocent won't die. It doesn't mean that the innocent won't suffer. It just means sooner or later, somewhere down the road, whether it's right then or in the future, or at the final judgment, in the end, those that have not served God, those that have not repented of their sin, will face a fierce wrath and a fierce judgment. David prophesies this. And he says they're going to become, they'll, they'll come to ruin. Now those that are of God, they get the reward. Those that are not of God get the judgment. They become Ruined, they're snatched up, they're torn away, they're uprooted, they have no place to go, no place to hide, no place to run, there, there, no roots, not, no connections, nothing. They are completely un.
done. Verse 6, the righteous shall see and fear. So you think, okay, you're righteous, you're a believer in God, you see the wickedness and the evil happening in the world. How should you reply or respond to when you see the evil people get the judgment that they deserve and they earn? Well, what David says is we look and we fear. What do we fear? We fear the wrath of God. We fear what God can do. We fear how fierce he is. And we fear that could be us. That could have been me. Save the grace of God. So rather than encouraging us to to mock. It encourages us to get our lives straight. Now David says they laugh. But it's not an arrogant laugh like. Like aha you got caught. It's, It's the kind of. Um, assurance of, yeah, what do you expect when we live in a moral universe and you're going to try to live outside the lines? Of course, this is going to happen to you. I knew this was going to come. It was just a matter of time. So in that way, it's this knowing that can uh, confirms the difference between good and evil. James Boyce says it's not a mockery at another person's misfortune It is satisfaction at the rightness of things when God intervenes to judge those who have done great harm to others. I know we live in a relativistic society that never wants to come down and say that anything is actually right or wrong. But there really is evil. And there really are. Thank God that we, we still have a justice system that punishes evil. There are people, maybe sometimes we are those people. We deserve to be punished for what we've done. And then lastly, a contrasting portrait of the righteous in verses eight and nine. But I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. Here's what we want to see here in these words of David. He's not reveling in how righteous he is and how evil Doeg is. That's not where he takes this. I'm so good and you're so evil. Notice where he lands. I'm just trusting God. That's basically what he's saying. My, I'm, not, I'm not trusting in my own works. No, I didn't do what you did. But that's not where my trust is. My right decisions, my discernment, my trust in my reward in the end. My trust for my right standing, my trust to avoid the wrath of God is in the mercy of God. It's in the grace of God. It's in the steadfast love of God. And that's what I'm going to trust in forever and ever and ever. David knows he's made his share of bad calls. He knows that he's not on a pedestal. He's trusting in the goodness of God on his behalf. And he says, I'm like that olive tree. The amazing thing about olive trees is their longevity. I mean, they just through droughts, you have too much rain or you have droughts and season after season, no matter what the weather seems to throw at them, they just have a way of coming back and thriving. And David sees himself when I'm close to God. It's like Psalm one planted by the streams of water. Same same concept. When I'm close to God, I just thrive. And even when evil things or bad things happen to me, and I don't always feel good, but what the best place for me I've found in life is just to be close to God. 
then I flourish. He, he gets me through things. I get the best that life has to offer. And I begin to pr- produce just like the olive tree produces so many useful things. As we draw near to God and trust in God, we for God's glory produce so many useful things, whether it's in our healing, whether it's in our suffering. And David says, you know, I'm just going to continuously thank him for everything that he has done. In light of this bitter history, I thank God for it all, because in the end, in the end, God will take care of all this. So he thanks, in essence, he thanks God for the good. He thanks God for the bad. Can we thank God for heaven? Sure. Can we thank God for hell? That's where David's coming from. The righteous judge. I thank him for everything. His whole plan. And so his response as we end this morning. He praises him forever. Because of his loving kindness. He trusts him for the present and he trusts him for the future. And because of that trust, he's not constantly getting knocked off track. You know, when we're young in the faith, a circumstance will happen. Something is thrown our way and we say, oh, my goodness, God, where'd you go? I thought I was your child. And then as we grow in the faith, we realize, actually, no, that was God. And he's using that to teach you just like he uses the times of of prosperity to teach you. He uses it all. He didn't go anywhere. You didn't do anything wrong necessary. This is you're in training. So he trusts God's righteousness. And then lastly, he says, I will give public praise to my God for all of the wonderful things he's done in my life. I'm not just going to keep it to myself. I want to make sure people know how good he is. I want to make sure people know that God is righteous. And that means sometimes people get caught and judged. And that was God's doing because he's a good God. And I want to know people to know about the grace of God when people don't get what they deserve. I want them to know about all of God's goodness. And so he gives public testimony. It says in the present in the presence of the saints to encourage his fellow believers. He is telling people what God has done, what he has learned, what he knows know, every Sunday we have an opportunity every Sunday as long as I can remember that I've attended this church with few exceptions there's been opportunities for for us to offer public praise public proclamation this is what God has done for me and I want you to know about it in the hopes of glorifying him and encouraging the saints that's the same idea when's the last time you gave a public praise It is so important in our body life for us to share what God is doing in our lives. Otherwise, the glories go unheard of. David said, that's not me. I'm going to tell people about it faithfully. When's the last time? Have you ever given public praise? Perhaps you have an opportunity this very service to do so. So this psalm just encourages us. That in the end, God has it covered. In the end, good prevails over evil. And now we have an opportunity to come and commune in the presence of God through the obedience of 
celebrating the Lord's Supper. And uh, we have an opportunity to praise Him and worship Him, maybe even give public praise in our time of worship. May God bless the preaching of His Word.